Hey guys, it's JP. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you're a church leader, I want to make you aware of a conference we're doing here in Dallas at Watermark. We are constantly being asked, how do you reach young adults? How do you reach millennials? We don't have it all figured out. We have paid some dummy tax throughout the past 12 years that we would love to share with you. And so we are having a conference. It's here in Dallas, October 24th through the 25th. You can find out more information on that at theporch.live, theporch.live. It is a conference on reaching millennials or reaching young adults. We hope you will join us. Welcome, friends in the room, friends in Forth, and in Houston, and uh, El Paso, and Tulsa, and everywhere join, joining us in, uh, 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 to find out other places that are joining us. And we actually have a new website that just launched. And if you uh, go to theporch.live, which is the new website, you can find out all the different locations. People will email in and say, hey, is there a porch live streaming location near me? Now they're all consolidated on our new website. So if you go to our new website, you can go check that out. We are going to continue the series, First Comes Love. I'm going to start with a little bit of confession. I have never seen uh, the top two grossing movies of all time. Uh, the first one is Avatar, uh, which is just blew people and it wasn't for me. And, uh, and so didn't feel compelled, still don't really to see it. And uh, the second one is a probably much more uh, famous in this room movie uh, known as the Titanic. Yeah. I know. I don't know where I was in 1997, but I apparently wasn't seeing Jack. And uh, so here's why uh, I'm not compelled even today to go see it and stay with me before you're like, oh my gosh, this guy hates love, Uh, is because if you go and you haven't seen it and you're like, man, what's the big deal? I mean, this movie was the biggest blockbuster that the world had ever seen to the date. It's still, you know, in the top two. It was the first movie to ever break a billion dollars in gross sales. And it broke it and did 1.8 billion in the first few months that it was out. I mean, it, it literally was a movie that everywhere, everyone was seeing once, twice, a few, uh, few times. And, uh, and yet, if you were to go back, if you didn't, if you're like me and you're one of the few, and you go back and you're like, man, what was the big deal about this movie? And you go read the plot, it is not going to give you a compelling sell on why you should see the movie. In other words, I think if you kind of remove the Celine Dion from the background and the boat scene... It's not going to be a uh, really compelling plot line that makes you want to go. Because here, here's what you'll discover. If you go read it without having seen it, and you go read it like I did, which was this week, going, man, what was the big deal about this movie? You, you discover it's this tale of this guy named Jack who essentially gambles his way onto a boat by a poker hand. And he gets onto this boat, and there he meets a woman who's already engaged but she's emotionally unstable and suicidal because of that engagement. And she attempts to give her life away, and Jack stops her in the nick of time. And then the two of them hit it off. They begin to feel like there's some sort of love connection going on, and uh, she falls in love with this kind of jobless wanderer in life. And they have sex, and then he dies like four hours later because she wouldn't scoot over on the raft. And, uh, And then she spends the next 80 years married to another guy, grieving the loss of her loved Jack, who never let go until he did. And uh, it's just not a big sell. I mean, if you think, and in the movie, I know you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you're saying this right now. Like, if you just kind of strip away and just read the plot line, you're like, man, what is that? That sounds like a terrible plot. It, it is a, uh, a romantic tragedy, to say the least. And yet at the same time that, you know, if you kind of dissect and you pull apart some of the things that make it 
uh, you know, music in the background and all the things that make it special. There's something about romantic tragedies in general that, that we're all just drawn to. Like none of us would want the story for our children or for, you know, a sister or for someone that we love to be the story of Jack. And then let me tell you how I met your mom. She was about to jump off this boat and I came down. I mean, nobody would want that for like a child or a daughter uh, to marry someone who's kind of this jobless wanderer who has sex with uh, his daughter on night one. I mean, nobody would want that story after painting her naked. It's just a weird plot line. And yet there's something inside of us that's drawn to it. There's something inside of us over and over again. We see just the way that we're drawn to, whether it's, you know, La La Land and these romantic tragedies. I mean, the most famous of Romeo and Juliet, where these lovers destined to be together, but not destined and die in one another's arms, where we're just like fascinated as a society, culture, and really people have, have kind of always been by the idea of a romantic tragedy. And, and if we had time, we not even could stop at movies and just say, man, it's all over the movies screen. People are interested or fascinated by it. They may not want that story for, uh, you know, someone they love, but, but they kind of have some part of them that's drawn to it. We see it inside of our music too. I mean, Taylor Swift has made a killing being able to monetize this where she is like, look, I knew you were trouble when you walked in and you got to ask, then why did you date him, Taylor? Why would he be interested if you're saying that you have, you know, a list of ex-lovers, this long list, and they all think you're insane and you're willing to write his name next to it. Why would that be appealing to us? Why are we drawn into that? Why is every song that it seems like uh, Taylor or Adele or these musicians will put out that's related to romance, it all has this kind of twisted romantic tragedy involved in it. And I think if we're honest and we actually took time to really sit down and think about it, we'd probably discover that uh, despite the fact that, man, there's part of us that's drawn to it, if we'd really thought about it, in the same way, we wouldn't want someone that we care. We wouldn't want our sister to have a love story that looks like Taylor's or like Romeo and Juliet's. We wouldn't want ourselves to have a love story that looks like that, where we meet someone and then they die a few hours later after we slept together and then we mourn them for the rest of our life. At the end of the day, I mean, it's like heartbreaking. And yet it's so common. The romantic tragedy is not a commonly in the way that it looks like the Titanic. It's common in that people step into romance and then just tragedy ensues. It's all over our country. It's all over the marriage rate. It's all over just the ways that, that uh, the collapse of marriage is taking place in our country where there's tragedy all over the romance, even inside of the romances inside of the church. So tonight, what I wanted to do as we continue this series is we're going to look at a story, a romantic tragedy from the Bible, maybe the most famous uh, romantic and the tragedies that were a part of his life, a guy by the name of Samson and Samson's girl named Delilah. We're going to look not just at Delilah, but uh, Samson actually, I mean, so we all know Samson. A lot of us know Samson. Samson's dude, super strong, Superman. But Samson had a kryptonite. Samson liked the ladies. And it was these ladies that we're going to look at tonight that ultimately led to his downfall. Because he perfected, not just with Delilah, he perfected the romantic tragedy twice. And we're going to look and learn from his example of really what not to do tonight. Last week, we really talked to the ladies about what guy to look for and to the guys, of, hey, this is the guy to be and ladies, this is the guy to date. Tonight, we're really going to talk about, hey, guys, this is the lady to look for or to not look for. And this is the lady to date or to not date. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 14. We're going to pick up the story of Samson. Uh, as I said, Samson was the leader uh, or Samson was supernaturally strong. We know that part. You may not know Samson was the leader of the nation of Israel at that time. Nation of Israel had an arch nemesis uh, enemy nation called the Philistines. And Samson, his job, ultimately, God said from birth, he showed up to Samson's parents, said, you're going to have a baby boy. He's going to be supernaturally strong. 
He's gonna be set apart for me. A Nazarite is what that means. You can't cut his hair. He can't drink alcohol and he can't uh, touch, touch dead bodies because he's gonna be set apart for me, but he is going to lead his people to conquer the enemy of God, the Philistines. And so we pick up Samson's story and right off the bat, learn from his example, really, of what not to do. So uh, Judges chapter 14, verse one, we'll start right there. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. Judges chapter 14, as we learn tonight's subject, how to avoid a romantic tragedy in your life. How to avoid a romantic tragedy in your life. Verse one, chapter 14. One day, when Samson was at Timnah, which is just a city uh, in Philistine country, a Philistine woman caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his mother and his father, hey, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I wanna marry her, get her for me, which is an interesting approach. Think about this if you leave the porch. Hey, mom, I saw this girl at the porch. Get her for me. Whatever works. Samson goes, tells his parents, here's what happens. Verse three. His father and his mother objected and said, isn't there a woman in our own tribe or among all the Israelites that you could marry? They asked, why must you go to the pagan Philistines? Pagan just meaning they don't share the same belief in God that we do. They're not among our people. They don't believe in the God that we do to find a wife. But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. Literally, your translation may have to do it. She looks, she's hot. I like the way that she looks. I want you to go get her. Now, the Israel nation had been told, commanded by God in Deuteronomy, which is one of the Old Testament books, hey, you're not to marry outside of the people of God. Uh, not for racial reasons or not for just God being angry reasons, because I want you to be devoted to the one true God. And Philistines and other nations, they don't believe in the one true God. So you're not to marry outside. And his parents go, Samson, we're not supposed to marry outside. Samson says, I don't care. She's hot. I think I got a shot. Go get her. Samson would have loved, I mean, it's essentially like the tender form of dating, isn't it? He's like, man, she's hot, swipe right. That's all I need to know. And so Samson looks, sees a girl, says, mom and dad, go get her. And he gives us really inside of this, uh, what will soon become just a pain-filled marriage. The first principle, if you want to have a romantic tragedy in your life, that you look for a lady who's outside of God's people, or if you want to avoid a romantic tragedy inside of your life, you look for someone who is inside and among God's people. Our first point from the text is, men, men, if you want to look for, or if you want to have not a romantic tragedy in your life, because I know the fellas in the room, if anybody doesn't want a romantic tragedy, it's you. You don't want to see a romantic tragedy on a movie screen, let alone live a romantic tragedy. And the first thing we can learn from Samson is you and I are not called, don't, are called by God to not look outside of God's people. And the nation of Israel for Samson, uh, or in Samson's time was the nation of Israel for us, what does that mean? The church. That in other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, you and I are called not to look for a spouse outside of God's people. And this flies in the face of what you're gonna hear from the culture around us that are gonna say, look, love knows no boundaries. Don't put love in a box. You can't just confine romance. Let the heart lead you where it will lead you. If they're Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever it is, let love lead you there. Don't confine yourself to this small group. And the Bible would say, if you do that, you are inviting pain into your life and you are a fool. You're gonna raise children out of the perspective or you should be raising out of the perspective of the faith that you have in Christ. You can't just say, man, whatever faith will make it work, you will be at odds daily with the most important human relationship you have, a spouse. Beyond your master or who's gonna be your God is choosing your mate. And the Bible says, man, don't go outside of God's people. And yet, at the same time, it also gives us, man, this can be encouraging because like we talked about last week, the Bible doesn't teach that you're looking for a one. 
like the idea of the one, this mythical person who's out there right now and she perfectly completes you or the guy who's out there who perfectly completes you is a myth. It's out there with the unicorn and the abominable snowman and the leprechaun off the Lucky Charms box. It doesn't exist out there. That it's not a one that you're looking for and stay with me, stay with me. It is someone from among God's people. In other words, there's not one person that you could marry. There is a group of someones that you could marry. That someones in the name of that group is the church, the body of Christ, not cultural Christians who are willing to go to the church on a Tuesday night, not even people who go to the porch, someone who's wholeheartedly following Christ, that you and I are not to look for the one out there somewhere, but for someone from among God's people. Here's what this means. Inside of the room, this is gonna be like, let me hammer this home. If you're single, seated around you right now are hundreds of girls you could marry and make it work with. Seated around you right now, inside of where you are. And I know you're like, yeah, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Because there's part of us that kind of wants to believe in the star-crossed lovers and we found serendipitously each other. And the Bible says it's just not true that seated around you, what is gonna make or break your marriage is gonna be, do they follow Jesus? Are they following Jesus right now, seated all the way around you? Are different people that you could work or that you could marry and make it work with? And I think part of us just goes, no, but I need to find the person that I'm most compatible with, even within the small group of God's people. You know, I haven't checked all the churches around here and I need to make sure that I find the person who's most compatible. Here's, let me just burst the bubble for anybody who believes that. You will not find the person who's most compatible. It is literally impossible And you may be going, oh, all right, well, I like a challenge. Bring it on. It's literally (laughs) impossible. Here's what I mean. If you were to take, so there's 80 million millennials. Stay with me. These are going to be a lot of numbers. But if you just took, hey, inside of that, the percentage of people who claim to be uh, evangelicals or followers followers of Jesus, uh, let's call it around 7 million uh, of the opposite sex. And that's even like a conservative that maybe there's seven, maybe there's 10. But even if you said, all right, there's 7 million. In order for you to find the one most compatible for you, You've got to meet all of them. Do you know how long it would take you to spend five minutes with all of them out there? 47 years. That's how long it was. It literally is an impossible. If you're like, man, I'm, I'm just looking for the person who is a follower of Christ who's most compatible for me. I'm looking. You will not find her. You will never find her. You are going to marry someone who's incompatible for you. Not only because of time's not on your side, but you're a sinner. And so will she be. And when you take two sinners... They're incompatible for every person on the planet. The Bible didn't teach look for a one. It didn't even look for for the one who's best, most compatible to complete you. Let me use a personal example. Could my wife, Callie, have married someone more compatible for her? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. We are so night and day different. If we do any sort of like personality tests, anybody ever done personality tests in here, like Strengths Finders or, um, you know, uh, Myers-Briggs, our Myers-Briggs, they literally are perfect opposites. She's an introvert. I'm like an extra extrovert. She is a feeler. I'm a thing. I mean, everything's different. Even the way that we like think about food, like her ideal scenario for going out to eat would be a different place every time and never go to the same place. I could eat at Chick-fil-A every meal for the rest of my life because I'm a Christian and an American. <laughs> that's not true. Oh, that is true, but uh, that's not the reason. But... Chick-fil-A, if you're out there, we're open to sponsorships. Kidding. Okay. Hey, we're just, we're, of course she could have found somebody, even within God's people. The reason why she and I, uh, she is the one is because we're married, not because she's the one who's most compatible for me. 
And the person that you marry will not be the person on the planet who's most compatible for you. And the decision that you and I have is are we going to listen to God's command, which is, hey man, the, the way to avoid a romantic tragedy is to not let love lead, but let God's word lead. And to marry not the one, but someone from among God's people and follow Jesus together all in wholeheartedly. Samson gives us the first example. If you want to love life, that's a train wreck. You go pursue, date somebody who's not a believer, who doesn't have the same faith that you have and the same God, and you are setting yourself up for disaster. So what happens next is Samson goes and, and they uh, have his parents bring about and, and go bring this woman uh, to Samson. And, and basically the marriage is arranged and they show up to her hometown, Samson and his family, and they come and, and they get everything together and they're about to get married. And Samson, Samson, honestly, he's not a great guy when you read this part of the story. Like he, he clearly has some character problems. He clearly loves me some me. And he clearly is not a, uh, a guy who's walking humbly with the Lord. And, and so while he's at the wedding, he picks a fight with the, the people from the town, the men from the town, these Philistine men. And he basically says, look, hey, I'll give you a riddle. If you could solve my riddle in seven days, I'll give you 30 outfits of clothes, which is just random, but there were 30 guys. And so I'll give each one of you a set of clothes. If, I, uh, if you can't solve my riddle in, in seven days, then you give me 30 pairs of clothes. They take the riddle. They're like, of course, we'll be able to solve it. He's just, he's the riddler. He does this over and over again, but he, he does this riddle and the guys can't figure it out. And so one day goes by, two days, three days, four days, and they go to Samson's wife. I mean, they're on the honeymoon. And they're like, hey, if you don't tell us the answer to the riddle, we're gonna kill you and your dad. And Samson's wife goes into a panic mode. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't do what you would think she would do, which is like, I'm married to the Hulk. What do you want? Come for it, Get, let's go. She, in fear, tries to take control of the circumstances. And she tries to manipulate and get Samson to give her the answer because in her fear, she just does what's irrational. I mean, she's married to Superman, but she's terrified of what possibly could happen in the future. And it leads her to do this. Here's what it says, verse 14 of chapter 14. Three days into this, they were still trying to figure out the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to explain the riddle or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. Did you invite us to this party just to make us poor? So Samson's wife came to him in tears. She's afraid of what they could do and said, you don't love me. You hate me. You have given me a riddle, given my people a riddle, and you haven't told me the answer. Samson said, I haven't even given my, the answer to my father and my mother. Why should I tell you? And so she cried. Man, he, he, his parents, they were, they were thick as thieves, man. All right, verse 17. So she cried whenever she's with him. They're on the honeymoon. And she kept it up for the rest of the celebration. That's the honeymoon. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. And then she went and she explained, <laughs> man, that girl, that girl's poison right there. And she went and explained the riddle to the Philistines. And Samson eventually realizes what had happened. And he gets all upset. He picks a fight with them. And all of a sudden, and like everything goes into turmoil and his wife ends up leaving him. In the midst of all the confusion and all of the chaos, uh, she wasn't driven towards her husband. She didn't uh, allow her faith, if there was any faith in God to direct her life, she was driven and led by fear. If you want to have a wreck of a romance, if you wanna have a romantic tragedy, the second thing you do is follow Samson's example as it relates to a lady to look for and look for someone who's driven by fear. 
or if you don't wanna have a wreck of a romance, is to look for someone who is not driven by fear. If you do not want to have a romantic tragedy, a dating life where, man, it's not just filled with breakups, it's breakups that break you. If, if you don't want that, God says, don't look for someone who is driven or ruled by fear. Look for someone who's ruled by faith. Man, I think this is so much more common than, than we even realize, especially men. Like a few of the ways you can see if, if a woman is ruled by faith is the way that they will do anything to catch a guy. And they're gonna use whatever they can, whatever they have to to catch someone. They're gonna put their body as bait. They're gonna uh, use the way that God has made them and, and uh, showcase it in the pictures that they take. That modest is, uh, or modesty is not something that's gonna mark them. They're gonna use whatever they can because they're gonna try to take control. Whatever I have to do to catch a guy. Whatever bait I need to use to catch a guy out there. We've said before, man, ladies, if you catch a guy for your body, you will lose him for the exact same thing. And a girl, men, who is marked by fear will allow whatever she needs to in order to catch a guy. I mean, you see it in, in a lot of times it manifests itself like this. There's girls who are like, they'll just try to take control and grab the wheel and do whatever they can to, to get a date. I'm so afraid of being single that I'm just gonna get onto 18 different dating websites and profiles. So I'm on match.com, Christian Tingle, Christian Mingle, eHarmony, uh, <laughs> Farmers Only, whatever I gotta do. I got Bumble, I got Tinder, I got it all. I'm gonna get me a, a man. And they're ruled by fear that's moving them to reach out and control. The Bible says, Samson's example says, man, do not date a woman who's ruled by fear. Not only will they do anything to catch a man, they'll do anything to keep a guy. And the fear of losing a guy or a man in their life will lead them to introduce sex into the relationship or allow sex to be in the relationship. They'll think, man, I'm afraid if I don't put out, he'll leave. And they allow fear to lead them to introduce even sexuality or to allow it take place. Bible says, don't follow someone who's ruled by fear or don't step into a covenant or relationship or dating relationship with someone who's ruled by fear. Step into it with someone who's ruled by faith. A lot of times, man, this is, this is probably the most common uh, and the, maybe they're all really common, honestly, where a, a girl will be so consumed with fear of being single consumed with the idea of, man, what if I never get married and, and I'm waiting for some guy to come along and finally uh, get, uh, give me a relationship or hand me that ring. And they'll see themselves as just sitting on the sideline waiting for life to begin because they're afraid, because they don't think that life, man, it, it really just doesn't begin until you get married. And they've bought a lie. If you're inside of this room, the best thing that you can do is to not feed that discontentment of, hey, when am I gonna get married? When am I gonna get married? And allow that root of bitterness to spring, but to run hard after Jesus, all in with him. It is that promise that you're going to get uh, a solution and your, your singleness is gonna end? No, but it does promise that much of your discontentment that you're feeding is going to begin to erode as you find the superior satisfaction that's in Jesus, because newsflash, marriage doesn't really bring the satisfaction that many people, or maybe you, think that it will bring. And don't allow that fear to drive you to thinking, man, life doesn't begin until I get married someday. Guys, don't buy the lie or don't uh, pursue a girl who's sitting on the sidelines, who's 
not running after Jesus in the season the way that they use your time, the way that they um, uh, are living their life because they're waiting to get in the game. Don't buy it in or don't buy into it. And don't look for someone who's led and ruled by fear. The third idea that we see really from the text is, is an observation that we see from Samson's most famous love fling, which happened with his girl, Delilah. Here's what happens next. So Samson's married, she ends up leaving him, and uh, it's just kind of one train wreck after the next. If you go read Judges 15 of what happens, and then in Judges 16, he meets Delilah, and here's what happens. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek. So he falls in love with a girl named, uh, a valley girl. She's a valley girl named Delilah. He falls in love and the rulers of the Philistines went to her because they knew that he was in love with her and they said, entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong. Like we see his strength, entice him to tell you the secret of it so that he can be overpowered and tied up securely. And each one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Uh, we know that there are five of them from my other place in the text and it's 5,500 pieces of silver. So they come up, they do, hey, look, we're gonna give you what today would be a, the equivalent of between 15 and $20 million. We're gonna give you enough to retire tomorrow if you will find out from your boy Samson how much it will take, what it will take, in order for him to be subdued. What's the secret of his strength? So Delilah, immediately we see, she ain't just any girl, she's a gold digger, and she wants that money. So Delilah responds. So Delilah said to Samson, verse six, please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. Man. <laughs> you gotta think if you're Samson, then you're like, uh... I don't think Samson was the brightest crown in the box and because this happens a few times and he still just goes with it. Man, he says this, if I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not been dried, I would become as weak as anyone else. So he just lies, gives her some fake answer. So he says, man, if you tie me up with these bowstrings, I'll be as weak as anyone else. So she goes and gets the bowstrings. He takes a nap over at her place. She ties him up with the bowstrings. And then the same thing happens over and over and over again with these three different uh, things she uses to tie him up. She goes, Samson, the Philistines are here. They're upon you. He jumps up, breaks the rope like it's nothing. And essentially he's like, huh, huh, where are they? And uh, she goes, oh man, they just ran out of here. It's fine. So it happens again. She says, I can't believe you lied to me. Why are you so strong? And what's the secret? How could you be tied up and subdued? It's so like, how can you be that dumb, Samson? And he tells her again. And here's, here's why I don't think he's dumb. And here's why if you're a guy, man, you, uh, you've been there. Uh, because Samson is love drunk. Like likely at this point he's sleeping with her. Why do I say that? Because he's sleeping at her house. That's probably our first clue. And he's love drunk, whether it's from the sex or whether it's from the way she looks, whatever it is. Like he's like, Dude, yeah, I, I'll tell you that. You know, it's cute. And so he tells her again, if you tie me up with fresh new ropes, I'll be subdued. So he goes to the nap, takes another nap. She ties him up and then she does the same thing. Philistines are here, jump up, save yourself. He jumps up, rips him apart. And uh, essentially goes, where are they? And she goes, you're lying to me again. Happens again. He says, oh, you got to put my hair in this loom or in this like weave. So he goes to sleep, takes another, I mean, Samson's a napper. <laughs> we can see this. He's a, he loves a nap. <laughs> and she's weaving his hair in the loom. Same thing. Philistines are here. They're upon you. And he jumps up, pulls his hair out. And uh, 
And again, nothing changed. And eventually it says that she tormented him over and over and over and over again. Tell me, why won't you tell me? It says that, uh, literally it says that she pouted to him. It says, how can you say, I love you and not tell me? And she nagged him until he finally shared. And he said, my hair has never been cut. I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If I were to shave my head, my strength would leave me and I'd become as weak as any other man. And Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap and she called in a man to shave off the seven locks of her hair. And this way she began to bring him down and his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke, he thought, I will do just as I did before and shake myself free, but he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him. They gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza, the capital city, where he was bound in bronze chains, which essentially is just extra strong chains, just in case, and forced to grind grain in the prison or in the dungeon. Samson and really Delilah illustrates the third lady to not look for. If you wanna have a romantic tragedy, man, you wanna look for a girl who's poison. Look for someone who is self-seeking, self-serving, or look for someone or, or don't look for someone who sees you as a means to an end. That's our third idea from the text. Don't look for someone who sees you as a means to an end. And man, again, it's much more common than you think. Where a girl will see whatever guy that asked her out, that's taken her out, it's just a means to an end. Look, hey, I, I would rather be with you than be lonely. I, honestly, I just got out of a relationship and I'm dating him because it's a rebound and it kind of helps me not feel as insecure. Honestly, I'm dating him mainly because he's a doctor. Honestly, I'm dating him because uh, it, it's better to you know, hang out with him on a Friday than to be lonely. I'm, I'm dating him because all my other friends have moved towards marriage and I don't wanna be the only one who's left here alone. But you don't date someone who uses you as a means to an end. If you wanna have a romantic tragedy, date someone who will use you, is seeking to serve themselves, not seeking to use you. That's exactly what Delilah's doing. She never loved Samson. She loved Delilah. Samson was a means to an end. I want that money. And sadly, all too common love stories that guys, you in this room will experience is that you're gonna date a girl who seeks to really use a guy as a means to an end. You don't look for someone who, who seeks to use you, but someone who's met Jesus, who understands that, that marriage is not meant to be this consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship. Like we have consumer relationships every direction you look, if you know what I mean by that. In other words, you don't wanna step into someone who uh, thinks of the dating relationship you have as a consuming relationship. Like, hey, I'm, I'm here to get kind of my needs met or what I can from it. I mean, we have consuming relationships or consumer relationships all over the place. Your relationship to whatever car insurance place you have right now is a consumer relationship. Your relationship to the grocery store that you go to, it's a consumer relationship. Hey, I'm really here as long as they meet my needs. If I could find something better, I would probably move on. I mean, that's exactly what we do. Like if your insurance could be dropped, you would move on. So would I. That's a consumer relationship. I'm here to get my needs met. If I can find something better, time to move on. If I can find an upgrade, time to move on. The Bible teaches that when it comes to a man and a woman, in a dating context and really in a marital context, it is not to be a consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship. What is a covenant relationship? A consumer relationship has conditions. If you don't meet this, then. A covenant relationship is unconditional love. It's not, hey, if you do this, then I'm in. It is no matter what you do, I'm in. The Bible says that every sort of 
marriage that exists is meant to be one of a covenant. Sadly, all over the place, we see people view it as a consumer relationship. Hey, if you get fat, if your body changes, I'm out. If I can upgrade you for a newer model, literally a model, I'm out, peace. And all over the place, our world feeds the message. I mean, look at Hollywood and you see the romantic tragedies of people who haven't embraced the biblical perspective of a covenant relationship, but have embraced this idea of like, man, a consumer relationship. I'm in it to serve and to get my needs met. The Bible says that marriage is to be a covenant where the person doesn't seek to serve themselves, but seeks to put the needs of the man, if they're a woman, and of the wife, if they're a husband, in front of their own needs, and to daily die to themselves and to care for themselves. You do not want a romantic tragedy. You honestly want, as we've said really almost every single week this week, you want a boring marriage. You want a, a marriage that will not make great TV, where there's no sleeping around. You don't have to worry, do I have an STD right now because I was cheating on my spouse? Where it's not exciting like Hollywood. You want an amazing one-on-one, one man, one woman marriage that is boring to Hollywood. It's not gonna make good TV. But let's be honest, The Bachelor in Paradise, is our example of like what makes good TV. That is a train wreck. Are you serious? One, there's no such thing ever as a bachelor in paradise, that a single guy in paradise, those things do not exist. We saw in the garden. That joke is funny if you would read your Bible, people. (laughs) I'm not even gonna explain it. I'm gonna let it just sink in. But you want a marriage that's not defined by that. In conclusion or in summary, as we learn from the life of Samson, man, men, gosh, I want this so bad. As you, because we pick on the guys a lot here, you want to make sure you do not just look for someone who's hot. You want to make sure you look for someone who knows Jesus, who knows by knowing him what it means to be a servant, who with you is going to spend the rest of your life serving one another out of reverence, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter five for Christ, that the way that they are going to be a servant in the context of marriage is because they're ultimately seeing themselves as serving Jesus. And it says both spouse spouses are to do that together in the context of marriage. You want to have a romantic tragedy, do the opposite. Do what Samson did. Let your heart lead you wherever love takes you. Allow yourself to step into a relationship with a lady who's ruled not by faith, but by fear. And step into a consumer relationship versus the covenant. Tragically, Samson didn't really gets to experience a turning point until he had lost everything. But the good news is his story doesn't end like the stories inside of Hollywood or the romantic tragedies we see on TV. His story takes a twist at the end. He's taken away, he's put in this dungeon and he's placed in these bronze shackles. His eyes are gouged out, he can no longer see. And when his sight is taken away, he first, or he begins to turn towards God. that when his eyes are taken, he begins to see. And we're told for the very first time, you could read the end of the story on your own, that Samson begins to turn in those dark dungeon days towards God in prayer. And his heart turned towards him. When he lost everything, when he lost his strength in his weakness, he found humility. And despite having lost everything, having done everything wrong, he turned to God once more. And the Bible says something that I, I hope you hear me if your story is filled with some of the brokenness that I know my story contains, 
of ways that I didn't lead girls well and dating, ways that, that sexuality and pornography were a part of my story and my experience. Like I know so many, maybe your story's filled with an abortion. Maybe it's filled with just a train wreck of relationships and one night stands. Whatever your story is, the story of Samson and the way that it ends breathes hope that God can take anything broken and breathe life to it. It says that in those dark days, he turned to God. And there's this verse that's so powerful to me. It's verse 22 and it says, but before long, Samson's hair began to grow back. That whatever your story is, whatever you've done, that if in humility and weakness, you will turn to God, he will turn that weakness into strength and allow whatever passed to not be a problem, but to be a platform to which he shows his goodness to the world around you, to be a story that he allows you to tell and proclaim to people for the rest of your days. What happens next is Samson, he's, he's sitting in that dungeon and he's let out from time to time. They would bring him out, Philistines would bring him out and be like, hey, we're having a party. Bring him out. He's a party trick. Bring him out. And he's let out and he's blind and they put him between these two pillars. And it says it's the pillars that are holding up uh, essentially the temple that all these people were in. And Samson prayed to God and he prayed something he never prayed in his entire life. Once more, God, will you make me strong so that I can take out the enemies of God? And he pushed on the two pillars and the entire temple went down. And in his weakness, God did more in his weakness than any other time in Samson's life, than any time when he was strong. Whatever your story is, it is not a problem for God. Whatever your past is, whatever you see is like the thing that, man, can God really uh, accept me? Like I have a sexually transmitted disease. I have an abortion in my past I've never told anyone about. I'm addicted right now to pornography. If you and I will embrace the truth that Samson models so well, if you will turn to God and say, God, will you come make my weakness your strength? That in the midst of my brokenness, you're strong, God, and I'm trusting in you. And if you will in humility surrender that to God, he will use you to do more than you can even imagine. Samson's hair began to grow. You, whatever your hair can begin to grow back if you will turn and allow God to take over. The Bible says in Proverbs 24 that a righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. Whatever your story is, however far you've fallen, however far you feel from God, he's not done with you. If you have a heart beating inside of your chest, the game is not over. If you will turn to him, if you will trust in him, if you allow in your weakness, whatever that weakness is, whatever that sin is, his grace to rush in, his people to come around, love you, care for you. He will allow in that weakness him to be strong and you to be strong and use you like you've never imagined. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the story of Samson. Thank you that you're never done. That no matter how far we've run, you don't give up on your people. And if we, like Samson, will turn to you, call out to you, ask for your strength, that despite all the ways that he had just blown it time after time, you still use broken people like him, broken people like me. Would you stretch out your hand in this room tonight for people who feel a sexual past that is filling them with shame right now and set people free. Would you break shackles? And would you in our weakness be stronger than we could ever think possible because you do more when we're weak than when we think that we're strong.
Father, we worship you in song. Would you help us to build our life around your love, around your truth? And would you use us, Lord? Amen.